Good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. No, that's right. Take last week's talk so I don't re-preach it. Half of you wouldn't even realize I was re-preaching it, probably. <laughs> you don't have to laugh that hard, Finley. I know that laugh. <laughs> uh, welcome back to more uh, Humans of Jerusalem. We are in the middle of an Easter series together, guys. We are trying to do what I'm trying to do for the Humans of Jerusalem, what the photo blog Humans of New York did for, well, the Humans of New York to bring people that often seem, I don't know, like they're in the black and white, to bring dimension, understanding, empathy to them as people, as human beings. And here's why. Because I believe over the centuries, the kind of ubiquitous um, nature of the, the Easter story has robbed the story of its historicity and stolen from the characters any semblance of their humanity. We now, when we hear about them, we see them as one-dimensional, quasi-fictional characters, they weren't, which we hold up as saints or degenerate, uh, degenerates, you know, the evil personified. But when we do that, when we see the story that way, we rob it, this historically very provable event, of its power to inform us and to transform us. Because at its heart, the Easter story, it's an ancient story, but I'm telling you not much has changed. It's contemporary. The choice is those very real human beings in Jerusalem that first Easter, the ones they faced and made in many ways are the exact same choices you and I face and need to make this Easter. Now, if you haven't gotten your Good Friday tickets, make sure you get them. Um, I, I think the first service has a waiting list. The second service has just a handful of seats in it. Um, we're going to conclude the series on Good Friday, and we're going to walk through the Passion Week through Scripture and narrative and song. And, and the goal would be on Good Friday as, uh, for you to walk out feeling the weight of the moment for each of the characters we've looked at, how their ancient decisions should inform our modern ones. And of course, don't miss the party on Easter Sunday. And please think about bringing friends to either of these. I think Good Friday is going to be especially interesting. Um, what we're trying to show on Good Friday is that this ancient story is both ancient and a modern dilemma. And you'll see that even through some of the music uh, that goes on. You'll, you'll see that you wind up listening to the radio on a, on a Tuesday afternoon, singing songs of Easter, and you didn't even realize it. So invite a friend. Easter and Good Friday. Back to the humans of Jerusalem. Now, so far, if you've been with us, week one, we looked at Caiaphas. He was the Jewish high priest that condemned Jesus and sent him off to Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate to be cru crucified. So interesting. If you missed it, I want you to go back and check it out online because what we looked at was that Caiaphas, they discovered his grave, his actual burial box under a park. They were building a water park in Jerusalem. And in that tomb of Caiaphas, this Jewish high priest, they discovered two Roman crucifixion nails. This is the only grave of any character ever found in all of the Bible. And in all of history, there's, archaeologists have only ever found one Roman crucifixion nail. They found two in Caiaphas' tomb. You should go check that out. He was a real human being faced with a real decision and real dilemmas. Last week, we looked at Judas. What was he thinking? Why did he do what he, what he did? What was he facing? And I think if you were here, you discovered really that there's a little bit of Judas in all of us, but that even in our dar darkest moments, Jesus still somehow calls us friend. And so today I want to conclude our series 
with whom I would argue is the most human of all humans in Jerusalem. Jesus' beloved disciple, Simon Peter. Now, some of you know his story, and if you do, you know why I say he was likely the most human of the humans there. Peter was a fisherman by trade, one who at Jesus' invitations dropped his nets and followed him. He was all at once. He was a dedicated disciple, trusted friend, and confident of Jesus. But at the same time, he was rash and hasty, He was irritable. He was capable of great anger. He was overly enthusiastic to the point of being impulsive. He was tender of heart, but as you'll see, weak in character. He was a bold witness for Jesus, but often too arrogant and boastful. You know what that makes, Peter? A human being, just like you and I and everybody in the room. And this very real human being was living through and making decisions at the very crucible of human history. And his story is our story. His decisions then could, and I would argue should, inform our decisions today. Now, I I want you to know when I say these things about Peter, I'm not talking out of school. I'm not talking um, cruelly about the dead. All those things I told you about him, Peter wanted you to know. It was important that you understood his foibles. I would not want you to know mine. I do my best to to hide them from you. Peter put them out there. In fact, it was so important to Peter that he not be held up, as as we are wont to do, as a sinless saint. He made sure that all of these embarrassing stories were written down. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, for the next 30 or so years, Peter went all over the ancient world preaching, teaching, and suffering for Jesus. Towards the end of his life, as he was was serving time in in Nero's Rome, in prison, waiting for trial, understanding he was likely to die, he decided he would call his traveling companion, John Mark, to write down his story. It's believed that Peter, he was just a fisherman, he was likely an uneducated man, He, he might have been able to read a little, he probably couldn't write much. And so John Mark records Peter's story from Peter's prison cell. We know it as the Gospel of Mark. It's the book of Mark in your Bible, but it's Peter's story. And again, I'm just going to drop this little tidbit here. This is history. I mean, why do we believe that the scriptural accounts of Jesus and his death and resurrection are true, even though they sound fanciful? Why do we believe they're true? Well, just look at when it comes to Peter and the story that Mark wrote down. One of the many reasons is something that scholars call the criteria of embarrassment which states that an account is likely to be true as an author would have no reason to invent an account which might embarrass him. There's no way you would write this down unless, like, you wouldn't make this up to make yourself look foolish. The only reason you would have this written down is if this is what actually happened. And so this is Peter's account of his own story that he wants you very real humans and men in New Jersey to know this morning. And since it's Palm Sunday, why don't we start with that? Here's what he told Mark. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, 
both for Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest that was sitting in the temple that day, and for Judas, who is marching in this so-called triumphal entry, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem during Passover week, he in a sense does this as a giant messianic reveal. He allows the people to throw a, a giant savior coming out party for him. Before he had told everybody to keep it to themselves, but now it was out on the streets. And as we've seen, it was at this moment, the beginning of Jesus' last week, when everything started to turn. It's when Caiaphas and, and Judas started to turn and think differently. And I would argue, I think it was right about this time that Peter started to think differently too. Now the scriptures tell us as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the people are crying out that he's the Messiah, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is crying. He's crying for the city as he overlooks at it, that they, they are misunderstanding who he is and what he's come to done, that, that they've missed the hour of their visitation by God himself. And he's weaking because in his very human state, Jesus we believe to be fully God and fully human, he knows what the weak holds for him. Peter, interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this story, if you've ever thought about it, what do you think Peter was doing as they, as they marched into town? I think Peter is grinning, smiling ear to ear, like can't contain himself joy, like the, the cat that just ate the canary. I mean, if you were going to give Peter a nickname, you would call him Palm Sunday Peter, because this was his best day. He was living his best life right now. This was, after all, his idea, I think he's thinking, as the people lined the streets, as the crowds gathered and the messianic chants began to rise, Peter had to be thinking, well, I guess he decided to listen to me after all. Because you see, just a short time earlier, just before Passion Week began, Jesus had asked all of the disciples an eternal question. It's one that rings true even to today for all of us. He, he first asked them, what do the people, who do the people say that I am? And then he looked at his gang, his boys, and he said, who do you say I am? And Peter, full of his faith and boldness, Peter, now listen, it's important you understand his story, Peter was the first human being to decry, to declare, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, in fact, says, it goes up to him, he goes, from now on, Simon, you're going to go by the name Peter, which means rock, because you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. But then, and, and Mark, when he writes this down, he, he just captures this so brilliantly. Mark is 16 chapters, it's so fascinating, and Peter's writing and Mark's recording it. The first eight chapters of Mark are all about Jesus trying to prove that he's the king, trying to prove who he is, who he said he is. And it culminates with that declaration by Peter. I know who you are. You are the savior of the world. You're the Messiah. And then the book, the next eight chapters go a whole different direction. No sooner does Peter declare it than Jesus goes, I've come to die. The savior is, has not come to take over, but to give his life as a ransom for the sin of all mankind. Peter loved the first part of the story. Peter wasn't a big fan of the second part of the story. In fact, from his cell in Rome, I can almost see Peter calling Mark over and saying, hey, make sure you write this down. And Mark looking at him going, Peter, do you, you know, you could skip some of this stuff. This is not going to look good on your LinkedIn profile. 
And Peter's going, no, 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 they have to understand. My guess is he would insist that you know that after Jesus got up and said, you're right, Peter, I'm the Messiah, Jesus got up and told him of his coming death. Here's what Peter told Mark. He said, Mark, write this down so they know this is what I did. Jesus, he spoke plainly about this coming death, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine rebuking Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He has in mind only human concerns. Imagine, imagine Peter telling Mark to write that down. Embarrassingly certain, or embarrassing, but true. And you know why? Because of course he has human concerns in mind. Peter's a human being. If Jesus is the kind of Messiah that Peter wants him to be, then Jesus heads into Jerusalem and he takes over. And Peter sits at his right hand with all of the power and all of the authority in the world. But if he's the kind of Messiah that Jesus is suddenly saying is and he dies, what happens to Peter? And so as they come into Jerusalem, enter the story, right? Peter starts looking around and going, you know, in all of his kind of bravado and his arrogance and his pride, he starts thinking, I guess somebody's finally listened to me. He must have changed his mind. But as we see over the last couple of weeks, for Peter and, and the other disciples, including Judas, things don't go exactly according to plan as soon as he gets into town. Instead of marching into Jerusalem and tearing down the Romans, Jesus heads into the temple and tears up the tables. And while Caiaphas, the high priest, and the ruling elites are, are meeting at Caiaphas' house to plot to kill Jesus, Jesus isn't doing anything to stop it. Instead, while he should be gathering up the troops to fight, he's a mile down the road in Bethany letting a woman named Martha anoint him with perfume worth a year's wages. And of course, they protest and go, what are you doing? This is, this is ridiculous. It's extravagant. It's too much. But Jesus goes, leave her alone. And then he says something really troubling to everybody there. Leave her alone. She's anointing me for burial. Peter was there that night. Can you imagine his reaction to that? Oh, I thought we were past this, Jesus. In fact, Judas couldn't take it. Judas got up and left. Says right then, that, that was when he was done. Peter hangs on a little while longer, though. And, and you know the story, many of you. So they gather for the Last Supper a short time later. And as we saw last week, as Jesus sits around with the disciples, he predicts Judas's coming betrayal. He, he speaks of his death once more during that very first communion service about his body being broken for them and his blood right being spilled for them. Judas, he picks up and leaves. The disciples and, and Jesus, the scriptures say, Mark records that they sang a song at the end of the meal, and then they headed out for some reason to the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter tells Mark that as they walk, and I'm guessing this for Peter seemed to come out of nowhere, Jesus walks up to Peter and says, you will fall away. For it's written... I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. You 
are the ones. And so at that point, I mean, the disciples, remember, they don't know that it's Judas that's off betraying Jesus. And my guess is that maybe Peter thinks Jesus is saying that it's him that he had spoken about as betraying him during the dinner. And here's what's important in the story, and Peter would want you to know this. It's right at this moment that Peter has a decision to make. It's an ancient decision. It's also your decision. At this moment, in the very light of what Jesus has said to him, what he said about him, Peter and you and I have two choices here. The first would be to acquiesce and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God and to believe what it is that Jesus said about him. I mean, right, what Peter should have said, I think, would be, it's me, oh my Lord, help me, Jesus. I don't want to betray you. Forgive me, Jesus, for even thinking it. Strengthen me, Jesus, so that this might not be the case. That's what he could have said. That's what he should have said. But I mean, if we understand the character of who this man is at this point in the story, you probably could have predicted what it is he is going to say. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I won't. I will not. Imagine, he looks at Jesus and goes, I will not. Again, why is Peter having Mark write this down? So that you would know, and I, I, I think that all that we'd be able to identify with the condition of this man's heart at that moment. Oh, no, 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 Jesus. You got the wrong guy. What are you saying about me? That's not true. It's not me. And of course he does what all of us do when confronted with our own sins and shortcomings. He, he looks over at the other guys. Jesus, it's not me. Now, I don't know about those clowns, but even if all of these abandon you, Jesus, they might. They're weak. I won't. You're wrong about me, Jesus. I would never do that. And I think Peter wants Mark to write it down. And, and as you'll see, it makes him look bad. But he wanted to make sure that after he was gone, and, and according to tradition, you might know that Peter did not live much longer. He was actually crucified by Nero, and he was crucified by his request upside down because he did not see it fitting to be killed with his Lord. That was Peter later, but this night it was not the same Peter. Peter wants you to understand the condition of his heart that night and the very bad decisions that that condition led him to. Peter, even though he had been walking with Jesus for three years, Peter, that night, like all the nights before, when he and the disciples, think about it, they had multiple times argued over who was the greatest. Their mothers were getting in fights over who was going to be the greatest, right? That night, Peter's feet still clean from Jesus cleaning them. That night, like most nights, Peter's heart was still full of pride and arrogance. Not me, Jesus. You got the wrong guy. Luke was a first century physician. He actually wasn't there to see any of this, but he was an educated man, unlike Peter, and set out to write an orderly account of these stories. And he adds some details. Jesus says to Peter at this moment, according to Luke, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, Strengthen your brothers. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter is 
is operating in a sense out of his old self, what the scriptures call the old man, his old nature, with all of its pride and its arrogance, right? And so what does Jesus do? Jesus starts to refer to him as his old name, Simon. Okay, Simon. And he says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. To which I think Jesus is saying, do you see what the spiritual, the sin of spiritual pride and arrogance opens each of us up to? Oh, no. No, not me. I could never do that. Never do something like that. They might. I wouldn't. The writer of the Proverbs attested as he said, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but when humility comes, but with humility comes wisdom. And at this moment, Peter is so filled with pride that it's only a short amount of time until he's going to be filled with disgrace. And at that moment, right, at that moment, in fact, I want you to notice two things in Jesus' reply. He says, Simon, I've prayed for you. Please hear that Jesus' grace and forgiveness and mercy always even precedes our understanding or acknowledgement of our own sin. Jesus isn't waiting for Peter to repent or acknowledge his sin, right? He's like the father of the prodigal son. He's already running towards Peter and forgiving. And then notice the prophetic in what Jesus says. And when you've turned back, Jesus just doubled down on it. It's not like, well, if you fall and turn back. No, no, no. Jesus looks at him and goes, listen, when you turn back, and then he goes on, he goes, truly, I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself are going to disown me three times. Super interesting in the scriptures. Some of you know this. Numbers carry with them significance. Scholars would tell you that number, the number three has, has the meaning of completeness. Jesus was in the grave three days. He was completely dead, right? It's almost as if Jesus is saying to him, not only will you deny me once, I mean, heck, that could happen to anybody. Peter, you will fully, wholly, and completely deny me. And so Peter responds again to what Jesus said about him. And again, he could have said, oh my gosh, it must be real. But he doesn't. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. No contrition, no brokenness, no humility. For Peter, he believes that he is who he says he is. Right? He's not whom Jesus proclaims him to be. Friends, spiritual pride will lead you to bad places. You will be sifted by the evil one. When my son-in-law, Ryan, came to ask me if he could marry my daughter, who's right there and nine months pregnant. Anyway, I'm, anyway, uh, we sat down. He came to my office over here, and Joan and I sat down, and we got a pizza. And, uh, you know, I think I told him, I told Court, listen, you need to warn him that this is not ceremonial for me. This is real. And so he sat down and, uh, you know, told me what his intentions were and that he would, he would like uh, our blessing. And I said, well, I have a, a list of six pages of questions here I'd like to ask you which is actually not an exaggeration. And uh, I said, here's my first question. I said, you're going to wind up getting my daughter pregnant. I didn't think it would be like moments later, right after the <laughs> wedding. I said, and uh, you know, she's going to be home raising your kids, and uh, you're going to be out, and, and Ryan's a police officer. You're going to be out looking all svelte in your bulletproof vest, and my daughter's going to be home, you know, with a big belly and throw up on her shoulder, and 
you're going to be out, you know, pulling beautiful women over with your uniform on. And I just looked at him and I said, let me ask you a question. How do you plan on not cheating on my daughter? And that's just what he said. <laughs> Dude, I just wanted your blessing, I, you know. And he just looked at me and he's like, well, I would never do that. And I said, Dude, that's a bad answer. You would do that. You know why he would do that? Because he's a human being. Spiritual pride. The evil one will sift you, man. You're opening yourself up. There's this element in the spiritual realm where you're begging for it. Later that night, many of you know the story, Mark writes that as Judas brings with him the temple guards, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now John was there that night. He was one of the disciples too. John writes that it was actually Peter who was the one that pulled out his sword and cut off Caiaphas' servant's ear. Do you understand what's happening here? Now think, what, think through. Jesus for some time has been telling them this is exactly what is going to happen. I'm going to get delivered over and I'm going to be crucified. Not only that though, Jesus has lived before them and taught regularly a very different life. Do you know how many times Peter had heard, turn the other cheek? If they force you to, if, if somebody steals your coat, Give him your, your shirt too. If, if a soldier forces you to carry his bag a mile, carry it too. Peter knew all of those things. You do too, right? He knew all of them. He'd memorized them. He, he'd put them on his refrigerator. They were written on pillows in his house. They were all up here. They just hadn't made that 18-inch trip yet. Down here. And what happened? Like so many of us, when Peter's dreams started to come crashing down, when what he wanted so badly all of a sudden gets threatened and seems like it's not going to happen, Simon came back. And like so many of us, he didn't respond with love, but he responded with a sword. He started swinging. And here's the story that I think he would want you to know. This is why he's telling you. Because he realized that that moment for Peter, it was not about protecting Jesus' life. It was about protecting Simon's hopes and dreams. I have a lot of Simon in me. In fact, I think the church over the decades has been known a lot more for being more like Simon than maybe Jesus. Often when it comes for the church, when it comes to the, the culture around us, the people around us, we respond to them with swords. Watch the news. Not with love. And, and if we're super honest, and I mean, Peter's being super honest here. I think we should be too. If we're super honest, a lot of the times, it's not about defending Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. Most of the time, it's just about defending us. And then, I mean, you can picture Peter telling this to Mark, and there's just some quiet in the room because it's such a crazy story. And then, then Peter says to Mark, listen, 
maybe he, he says it out, out loud for the first time because he had never thought, thought of it this way before. He says, write this down, Mark. Then everybody, everyone, everyone deserted him and fled and ran away. Including, I think Peter would have said to Mark, me. Now, you know the story, many of you. Peter has Mark paint it with the brutality it's due. They drag Jesus back to the house of Caiaphas, right? Which, by the way, still exists. I had some friends who were here two weeks ago. They've been on a tour in Israel. They were like, we were at the home of Caiaphas, and underneath the home of Caiaphas, they still have the holding pens where it was likely Jesus was kept that night. You can go and see this. Don't let the story lose its historical truth. Peter says that there, at that home, all of the leaders that had gathered condemned him as worthy, condemned Jesus as worthy of death, and they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said mockingly, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And Peter just paints this striking disconnect as he tells Mark, Mark, please write this down. And this has got to kill him, right? As this was happening... I was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and she saw me warming myself by a fire. I mean, there's an important detail here, and it emerges later, that Peter, in this moment when Jesus would need him most, at the moment when you would imagine would be the moment if he was ever not going to deny Jesus, it would be right now as he hears the beatings coming from, from some room over on the other side of the wall. Now would be the time he stands up. Instead, it's the time he sits down at the fire to comfort himself. Peter keeps telling the story. He says that the young girl, she looked closely, Adam, you, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. Now remember, this is so embarrassing if you're Peter, okay? I mean, this is an emasculating story. This is no Roman sentry. This is no guard of the high priest. This is a schoolgirl. And of course, Peter will at least stand up to her, Right? Maybe he'll just try to explain himself. I mean, what happened to all the bravado, right? It's just a schoolgirl. But he denied it. I do not know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she again said to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Well, if he denied it to her, he's definitely going to deny it to them, right? And again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. I mean, you're not from here. You sound different. You got an accent. You've got to be with him. And I never caught this before until I was working on it this week. This is what, this is what Peter told Mark to write down that he did. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He began to call down curses, not on the people. I, I don't know that, enter your curse word here, man. Can you feel that? 
And then he writes that it was right then. I don't know that. Whatever. Immediately. The rooster crowed for the second time, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, tw crows twice, you'll disown me three times. Luke, actually, who looked into all this, added a, an interesting detail. He said, right at this moment, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you feel it? Mark writes, and Peter broke down and wept. Tough guy Peter, arrogant Peter, proud Peter, rugged fisherman, calloused hands Peter. No, not I, Jesus. You have it all wrong. Interesting thing about Peter's a self-made man, right? We're all self-made men here in Mendham, New Jersey, men and women. Interesting thing about self-made men and women. They have a tendency to worship their creators. Think about that. But for Peter, not anymore. At this moment, there, there is this shame and embarrassment and this internal disconnect that goes off inside of him. I don't know if you've ever been there. Jesus looks at him and it's like all of a sudden he realizes, I'm not who I thought I was. I'm not who I said I am. I'm not who I've been trying to get other people to believe I am. The, the posing goes away. The veil comes off. This is the feeling every man and woman who's ever woken up in the wrong bed and taken the walk of shame home has had. How, how did I get here? Who, who am I? It's the feeling, it's the feeling right, when, you, when the Ponzi scheme gets discovered, when, when folks at work realize you've been taking credit for somebody else's stuff and it gets unmasked and you sit there and you go I used to think I really was an achiever but it turns out I was just a thief it's if you're in high school right it's when you're talking to your friend and you're trashing your other friend and she records what it is you said about Heather or Jimmy and then she goes and plays it for Heather or Jimmy when it all comes crashing down and you look around and you try to blame somebody else, but there's just nobody there to blame. It's just you and your sin and your shame and that damn rooster. Am I Simon or am I Peter? At one point, Peter thought that thumping his chest was what was going to make him true to his Savior. He had rested in himself, confident in who he was, but now he realizes that was what actually made him abandon him. It would seem, if the story ended here, that Peter is going to wind up being just a mention in the scrapbook of time. But Jesus, Jesus I don't know if you, you really get this. When you read these stories, you go, geez, he is, I mean, I don't know if I'm breaking any ground here. Jesus is a much better person than I am. I mean, I would have just looked at Peter and, well, I'll leave it at that. But Jesus, he refuses to leave him there, right? I mean, he's on the ground crying. I would have probably given him one last, I told you so, at least. Maybe that's what you've experienced in those moments where you've, 
you've had the veil lifted on who you really are, and you've had a parent or a friend say, I told you that's who you were. Peter abandons and denies Jesus, and so have you and I. But the story of the gospel is that Jesus, the story of the gospel is that Jesus never returns that favor. I need you to hear this this morning. Jesus does not leave Peter there, nor will he leave you there. He will not leave you there. He, he did exactly what he said he would do. He said, I'm going ahead into Galilee, and I'll meet you there. And he does. John writes down what happens. That, that along the beaches on this, this morning, a few days after the resurrection, Peter had decided at one point, I'm going out fishing. And so he, him and the boys get in the boat, and they head out. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered, he said. Well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, I need you to stick with me because this is so fascinating, okay? This should sound like a familiar story. Where have I heard this before? I've heard this somewhere before. I'm going to show you in a moment. But Peter immediately understood what was going on. John goes on. He says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water, and he runs towards Jesus. And when they landed, they saw this. Now note, this super interesting note. John makes sure we catch it. A fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. A fire of some burning coals. Like the fire around which Peter had sat the night he denied Jesus. And Jesus sits there with Peter next to the fire, which had to have memories starting to flood back for him. And Peter looks and starts to see Jesus' nail-pierced hands. John writes, when they had finished eating, Jesus kind of pulled him aside, I guess, and said to him, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You know what he's doing? He's taking Peter back to that moment of his greatest failure, right in front of the fire, and reminding him exactly what it is that he had said. Peter, do you remember what you said about these guys before? How you would never deny me. These guys might, but I never will. Jesus, look, I would never. They'll deny you, but I'm much better. I'm greater than them. And you can almost see Jesus looking over at the other disciples are going, Peter, in light of your failure, let me ask you again. Are you still so arrogant? Do you love me more than these? Notice how Peter responds. He doesn't actually answer the question. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. I want you to sense the humility here. Jesus has, in a sense, shown him his sin. He's reminded him of his pride and his arrogance. And now Peter just says, without trying to make any excuses, it's not about them anymore. It's not about blame or shame or comparison. Jesus is showing him, Peter, remember what it used to be about for you being better than the others, the comparison game. Remember, Peter, how our relationship was based on what you were going to do for me, the pride you had in performing, that your efforts were going to be what would save you and impress me. Peter, back then, I was not the foundation of your faith or your life. 
you were. Your pride, your arrogance, your best efforts, your works, they were all the foundation. And so how does Peter respond? He goes, Lord, you know I love you. Actually, in the Greek, some of you know this, he actually responds with a lower form of love than Jesus had asked him. Jesus said, do you agape me? And he goes, well, I phileo you. It's kind of a lower form of love. Is he going, he's basically admitting the, the error of his ways. I love you, Jesus, but I realize maybe it's not as much as I thought. There's this, there's this moment of brokenness and, and, and transformation. And so Jesus asks him again. And then Jesus asks him again, three times, completeness. And at this moment, Peter realizes what Jesus is doing. Peter, you deny me three times. Let me ask you for a third time in front of the fire. It's almost like he's rubbing it in. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Did you catch the line, Peter was hurt? In the Greek, that word was much, was much more significant. It meant to grieve or to mourn. Peter begins to weep. But this time, he begins to weep differently. When he wept that night in Jerusalem outside of Caiaphas' house, that night, Peter wept for himself. He wept over himself, what he had done, who he had become, what people were going to think of him now, the shame, the embarrassment, the position that he had lost, the, the, the danger he was in, the fool he'd become. That night he wept over himself, but this morning it was different. Tim Keller in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, points out that Paul in his letter to the church in, in Corinth says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, that first time it was worldly sorrow. It was all about Peter. Of course it was. That's where he was. This time it was different. It was godly sorrow. Last time he wept over his sin, but it only made him feel worse. His self-esteem was shot. That was ungodly sorrow. It led to death. He was thinking of what his sin had cost him. But this morning, as the sun glistened off of Jesus' still bruised body, he starts to grieve not over, over what his sin cost him, but looking at Jesus' hands and feet, what it cost his Savior. Friends, there are two kinds of sorrow. Many of us in the church repent, and we weep over our sin. But oftentimes, let's just be honest, oftentimes our sorrow is related to what our sin is going to cost us. The shame it's going to cost us. The embarrassment for our families. The loss of the relationship. The job. That kind of repentance, it, it, it leads to sorrow but to death, not to life. It leads us to temporarily change things so we escape the pain, but when the hurt stops, we go right back to the same behavior, the same person. Moral people, religious people, they look at their sin and they go, look what my sin cost me. That's where Peter was, but now Peter understands something differently in light of who he sees in front of him. Christians, which is what Peter was becoming at that moment, they look at their sin and they say, Look what I have done has cost my Savior. Religious people, as it's been said, bring their sin to Mount Sinai. That's where Moses got the law. And they say, man, am I going to get it for this. 
Christian people bring their sin to the cross and they say, look at what he got for this. One brings temporary fixes and ultimately death. The other, new life and permanent transformation. Keller gives this amazing example of how practical this is. He does a lot of marriage counseling like I do, and I've seen this exact same thing. He says oftentimes, and this is so true, women will come in and they'll say, I can't take it anymore. I've been getting abused for 15, 20 years. I've put up with it for this long. I can't take it anymore. I'm leaving him. And usually you'll call the husband in and you'll say, I want you to understand what's happened here. Your wife has come to see me. You've been hurting her for all these years. And she's finally had enough. And she's going to leave you. And when the husband hears this, almost all of them repent. They feel terrible. I don't want my wife to leave me. And they go home and, and they say, I'm sorry. And I can't believe I've hurt you and treated you this way. Please forgive me. But he realized over time, he said, there's two kinds of husbands. One husband is sorry that his wife is leaving. She's upset over the consequences. The other one is crushed because he hurt her. Is he leaving because, or is he, is he repenting? Is he sorrowful? Or is, is he turning back because he hurt her or because she's leaving? Is he responding to her hurt or his hurt? Repentance for what he did or self-pity for what she's going to do. Both husbands will change, but one, not, not permanently. As soon as the consequences fade, he goes right back to his old ways. Some of you know that story. Peter's story this morning was that he now had become a believer. His sorrow had led him to godly repentance. He knew he was forgiven because of what Jesus has done for him. He's looking at it. His hands, his feet. His story used to be that he thought his performance for God would make him acceptable to God. I'll never deny you, Jesus, but now things have completely changed. You want to know how you can tell? Here's how. That boat and fish story. It was, in a sense, a rerun for Peter. When he hears this, he remembers another time where Jesus called out to him in a boat. Luke says the same thing happened when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. Check this out. When he finished speaking, this is all the way back in the beginning of Peter's story, he said to Simon, because he was still called Simon then, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon said, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. When Simon Peter saw this, anybody remember what he did the first time? This is the exact same story. The first time this happened, Luke said he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. By having the, the greatness and power of Jesus near him, he realized his smallness and his inadequacy and his sin in light of God. And he, he would do anything to get away from God. But now something's changed. The exact same thing happens in the boat. They pull up all these fish. Peter becomes again aware of who Jesus is and how small and insignificant and, si and sinful he is. But what happens this time? He runs towards Jesus like a crazy man. How can it be the same guy? It's not. One's become a Christian. His self-image was no longer based on his spiritual performance. He no longer weeps over his own brokenness but over the one broken for him. 
Friends, Peter would want you to know he was just like you. He was cocky. He was a little arrogant. He was full of hope. But he'd also want you to know if, if you follow that journey, Satan will sift you. And when he does, you'll have two choices. You can repent and grieve and weep over your own sin and what it's cost you. Or if you want to change, you will repent, grieve, and weep and pick it up and take it to the cross and look in the face of your Savior just like Peter did that morning and go, my God, what I've done to you. And you'll change. You'll change. And that is the story of Peter, a very human Jer human of Jerusalem. Let's stand and close the song.